Well, this morning, as we continue our series through the Sermon on the Mount, we have the opportunity to walk through what might just be the most well-known passage in the entire Bible, the Lord's Prayer. Found in Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13, this concise yet captivating prayer has been beloved by believers for two millennia. Whether in personal devotions or corporate liturgy, the Christian practice of regularly reciting these words can be traced back nearly all the way to when our Lord first spoke them. But not everyone loves this passage. Several years ago, there was a kerfuffle in the UK over an advertisement that appeared in cinemas during Advent. The video showed various people across the UK praying the Lord's Prayer, and in the end, it was banned because it could potentially offend or upset people of other faiths. Now, I'm sure that most of us would find this to be rather ridiculous. The advertisement itself was powerful, and of course, we cherish the words, uh, the, the content of the words found in that prayer. But if you stop and think about it, the Lord's Prayer is indeed offensive. Far from mild, nominal, or trivial, it is deeply subversive and upsetting to anyone who does not worship the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ from the first phrase to the last. Because it's so familiar to most of us, we're prone to forget just how radical this prayer is. But if even just our church was captured fully by the vision that Jesus here sets forth, there's no telling how drastically our families, our community, our workplaces, and our world might be transformed. A few years back, one theologian published a book appropriately titled, The Prayer That Turns the World Upside Down, The Lord's Prayer as a Manifesto for Revolution. My hope and prayer this morning as we dive deeply into the Lord's Prayer is that our hearts might become more aligned with the priorities of Christ and his upside-down kingdom, and as a result, that we might become more fit to live as citizens of that kingdom. Let's read through our passage as we begin. If you haven't already, please turn with me to Matthew 6. I'm going to back up a couple of verses to provide some additional context, so starting in verse 7. When you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, because your Father knows the things you need before you ask Him. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. Before we actually dive in, I want to make a few quick comments about an issue related to the ending of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, this text is so well known, and I'm sure that many of us in this room have it memorized, that you might have noticed something 
or rather something that was missing at the end of the prayer. So depending on your church background or more specifically the translation that you used growing up, you might have expected these words to follow the final petition regarding deliverance from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I was reading from the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, which didn't include this sentence. And so what, what is going on here? Did they intentionally remove a verse from the Bible? Now, the simple and concise answer is no, they didn't. These words were not originally a part of the book of Matthew. This is a very complex question, and I could spend a long time detailing all the intricacies and nuances of the discussion. Believe me, I'd love to. I'm fascinated by this topic. Um, this issue relates to what is called the field of textual criticism. It's a technical name for the process by which highly trained scholars attempt to reconstruct and restore the original text of Scripture in light of all the available evidence that we have. We don't have the original editions that were written in Hebrew for the Old Testament, Greek for the New, but we have a lot of manuscripts from the centuries following, and so we try and piece together, well, what is the original text? And we get really close 99% of the time, but there are some times where there is a question regarding what belongs or what doesn't belong. And so when it comes to this verse in particular, the reason why almost all modern English editions do not include it is because there is essentially a unanimous agreement that these words were not originally included by the author of Matthew's Gospel. Instead, the familiar ending would have been added by later Christian scribes, which is why it only shows up in later manuscripts. Most English Bibles, like the ESV, the NIV, the CSB, the NLT, will include a footnote in your Bible. Always read the footnotes. It says something like, these words are not included in the earliest and best manuscripts. And so the reason that these words are then found in older translations like the KJV, or the NKJV, which is probably the wording that a lot of us are familiar with, is because they were translating using later and fewer Greek manuscripts. And we've advanced in our knowledge and the resources we have available. Um, and so that's why it's not present except in a footnote in most of our Bibles. Again, I could go on about this. It's a very simplified explanation, um, but for some of you, this, this might be completely new. It might even really bother you. Again, I wish I could spend more time here. Uh, let me emphasize two things, though. One, you can trust your English Bibles. Whatever translation you have in your hands or on your phone, uh, you can trust and be confident that it's the Word of God, it's inspired, it contains His revelation for us. And two, the fact that these words are not original does not mean that they're wrong or that, they're, uh, that it's inherently inappropriate to pray them. There's a reason that the phrase became attached to the end of the Lord's Prayer. It says some very true, some very good things. If you memorize the prayer with this ending, it's totally okay. You don't need to forget it. In fact, what I'm wanting to just point out is that in the text of Matthew, these words don't belong. But in the prayer, if we take it on its own, the ending can be fitting and helpful. And so to stress this, we're going to be reciting the Lord's Prayer together later in the service, and I'm going to include this sentence just because it is helpful and it is true. I'm going to move on now, uh, but if you have 
any questions or concerns or if you're just interested in knowing more, please come talk to me after the service. I would love to talk more about that. So the Lord's Prayer, as we, as we approach the text, it's important for us to remember that in Matthew, this doesn't just stand on its own. It's a part of a literary context. It doesn't float disconnected from everything else, but it's integral and is intentionally connected to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Last week, Greg led us through verses 1 through 18 of chapter 6, which is a large unit. In this section, Jesus continues to illustrate what it looks like for his disciples to embody this whole person righteousness that he's uh, said is expected of those who belong to God's kingdom. 6.1 provides the theme verse of this unit. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. He then addresses three topics related to personal piety and devotion, giving, praying, fasting. Each of these receives both a positive and a negative example where Jesus sets out the wrong way and the right way to undertake these various spiritual disciplines. In each case, the incorrect way is a matter of outward show and hypocritical behavior which stems from a wrong heart seeks the praise of others rather than of God. The right way, on the other hand, is carried out from a truly righteous heart that seeks the approval of God rather than humans. Whole person righteousness is a matter of internal motives, not just external actions. It concerns the whole person. Verses 7 through 15 are an intrusion into what is otherwise a very tightly organized section with those three examples. The subject of true prayer is deemed significant enough that it receives a more lengthy discussion. It includes an additional wrong way and right way contrast in verses 7 and 8, a model of how to pray, the Lord's Prayer in verses 9 through 13, and then we get a final comment on one particular clause of this prayer in verses 14 and 15. It's no accident that the Lord's Prayer is a part of this unit. It's no accident that it's the very center of this unit, which is in, in itself the center of the central part of the Sermon on the Mount in 5, 17 through 7, 12. In other words, the Lord's Prayer is at the center of the center of the center of the Sermon on the Mount. It's that significant. Even the prayer itself possesses a, a remarkable structure. After the opening address, Our Father, there are six petitions or requests, which are then split into two groups of three. The first three petitions are oriented toward God and his worship. The last three are oriented toward human needs and relationships. Put another way, the first group is directed vertically, while the second group is directed horizontally. Though succinct in form, the prayer is quite comprehensive. One writer puts it this way, The Lord's Prayer stretches from the Father at the beginning to the devil at the end, from heaven to hell, and in between, in six brief petitions, everything important in life. We'll see that Jesus really does include so much here in these short lines. Verse 9 begins, Therefore you should pray like this. 
Jesus is about to offer a model of genuine Christian prayer, prayer that should typify the truly righteous in contrast with the hypocrite, verse 5, and the one who does not belong in the believing community, verse 7. They're called the Gentiles, the pagans. In the preceding section, Jesus has condemned forms of prayer which are performed with a view to human approval, as well as prayers that are built on a misunderstanding of how God expects to be approached by his people. In verse 7, right before the Lord's Prayer, the issue is not with the method or the frequency of prayer, but with the attitude which underlies it. And so what Jesus is going to do is exhibit prayer that's not simply about communicating information to God. He already knows every word you'll say before it enters your mind and leaves your mouth. He's going to show us that prayer is not simply a technique for getting things that you want from God. Instead, true prayer is about drawing oneself into the divine life of the Trinity, into the very mission of God in this world. The prayers of the righteous are an expression of the relationship of trust which follows from knowing God as Father. So in this prayer, our Lord provides his disciples with an example that counters the negative one provided in the beginning of these verses. Jesus is not providing a script of the only words that we can and should pray. Instead, he gives us a model of the kinds of petitions and the God orientation that should shape the lives of those who aspire to embody this whole person righteousness. He gives us an illustration of the shape and emphases of the prayers of those who belong to God. And so he begins, our Father. From its opening words, his prayer is brimming with significance. Note the very first word, are. It would be easy to miss just how profound this is. But in Jesus' examples, he instructs his disciples to pray corporately. There are no singular pronouns in the prayer. There's no me, I, my. It's all plural, are, us, we. This speaks to the corporate reality of the Christian life. Though it's appropriate to use this, Individually, this model prayer is formed and framed as the petition of a community. Note the second word, Father. This word highlights the ultimate reason why Christ's followers are not supposed to pray like the babbling Gentiles mentioned in verse 8. They have a heavenly Father who knows them and cares for them. This trust in a loving Father is the foundation for genuine prayer. Jesus, throughout the entire book of Matthew, and especially the Sermon on the Mount, uses the phrase Father, or Father in heaven, dozens of times. One scholar, Jonathan Pennington, summarizes it this way. He says, Because of the disciples' child-parent relationship with God, made available through the divinely revealed Son, A follower of Jesus does not need to try to persuade or manipulate a reluctant God. Instead, prayers can be simple and direct because they are already predicated on an established familial relationship. Or, put another way, in the words of the author of Hebrews, we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. God is our Father, and that is a comforting 
comforting thought. But at the same time, the next phrase, in heaven, reminds us of another important truth. While God is compassionate and completely trustworthy, he is also transcendent. He is above us, and thus he must be approached with proper reverence and honor, which we see in the following lines. So the first of these God-centered or God-oriented requests that Jesus lays out is your name be honored as holy, or if you're using maybe an older translation, hallowed be your name. This marks the first of these three petitions, and we'll see, though, that the next two are really overlapping. They all connect and communicate this one central idea. They're summed up with the final phrase, on earth as it is in heaven. This request, though, about God's name being honored as holy or being hallowed is connected to the entire story of Scripture as begun in the Old Testament, where God reveals his name to his people, and he has a mission of proclaiming that name throughout the entire earth. God's name is honored as holy or hallowed already in the sense that he doesn't need to do anything to make it holy. He is holy. He's revealed his name. He's made known his glory. He continues to do so, and he already is holy. His name is holy. And yet what this, this clause says is that not only does God make it holy, he's the one who does it, but we also participate in this. We're given the opportunity to honor his name as holy. We have become his people and we acknowledge his holiness and display it in our lives as the church. And so we participate directly in spreading his name throughout the earth and his name being honored as holy among the peoples of the earth. What Jesus teaches us to pray is that God's name would be reinstated to a place of uniqueness and honor. It has been desecrated by the sin of his people, the sin of humans who he created, and so this petition asks him to act in history, to accomplish redemption, to carry out his plan to restore and save his corrupted creation. The second plea, your kingdom come. If you've read any of the Gospels or been following with us through the Sermon on the Mount, you know that the kingdom is a central concept in Jesus' teaching. That's really the center of the entire Sermon on the Mount is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And here, Jesus teaches us to pray that the kingdom would come. This request, though, that the kingdom comes, does that mean that it's not already here? What do we do with the statements that Jesus made earlier in chapter 4 of Matthew's gospel where he preaches that the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. In the New Testament, we find this already not yet tension, this, this reality where God's kingdom is here and yet it's not here in its fullness. It is not as it one day will be. Jesus inaugurates the kingdom of God, but not fully. And so we pray that God would reveal it in its totality, that he would implement his reign 
all over the world. Augustine, the great theologian from the fourth century, provides some helpful comments here. He says, The expression, your kingdom come, is not to be thought of as if God were not now reigning. Some might get the strange impression that come implies for the first time upon the earth, as if to imply that God were not even now really reigning, or that God has not always reigned upon the earth from the foundation of the world. Come, therefore, is to be understood in the sense of manifested to humanity, just as the light that is present is absent to the blind or to those who shut their eyes, so the kingdom of God, though it never departs from the earth, is absent to those who know nothing about it. This petition is that God's reign would come in full, which we know from the rest of Scripture occurs when Christ returns again. The final Third petition of this first section is your will be done. It's easy to see how this, again, is very much connected with the last. Your kingdom come, your will be done. This petition says that God is the one who is going to be obeyed. His purposes are to be fulfilled. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes clear just how important it is that his people are the ones who do the will of the Father. And what is maybe one of the most terrifying texts in all of Scripture, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will be acknowledged before my Father in heaven, but only those who do the will of the Father. As God's people pray that his will be done on the earth, that his purposes become manifested, it means that they must also be those who do his will and follow his commands. The phrase on earth as it is in heaven applies to all three of these ideas. In heaven, God's holiness is perfectly acknowledged. His reign is manifest. His will is done. This prayer then is for the heavenly state of affairs to become reflected on the still corrupt and sinful earth. It expresses a desire for God's reign to become a full reality. This desire, this longing for God's holiness to be known, for his name to be spread, for his kingdom to be here, his will to be done, this should shape our hearts and our lives as Christians. This should be our driving purpose. This is what drives us, is that these things become reality. It shapes us as the church, as God's people who are a light in the world. We pray and we long and we hope that all these things that are in heaven right now would become real on earth. And again, if we are to pray this way, we must be prepared to start living this way. After focus on God and the kingdom, now we move to our own needs. I think this is instructive for all of our prayers. It's easy to approach God with this list of all these things we'd like. Maybe like he's, he's Santa in the sky and we're just going to bring our list to him, ask him to do all these things for us. And yet Jesus models a prayer that is first and foremost God-centered. It's theocentric. 
but we do move into a section that is about our own needs. And as we'll see, this, uh, this section on our own needs still is from this perspective and angle where God's will, his glory are front and center. And so the first, give us today our daily bread. This declares trust in God as the one who provides. It declares that he is the one who fulfills and gives us all that we need. We saw earlier in the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. They will be satisfied. We'll see this in the following section in chapter 6. The end of this chapter has a long exposition of, of what it means to not worry, to not be anxious, to trust God. The Father is the one who provides. Think of in Exodus, as, uh, as God rescues his people from captivity, brings them into the wilderness, and feeds them every day. He provides just what they need. No more, no less. He gives them all that they need. And so by bread, by daily bread, God provides our physical, our routine needs. He provides what we need to survive and live day to day. And yet, at the same time, by giving us our daily bread, we know that God sustains and provides for us in ways that are not limited just to physical food or clothing. He provides for us spiritually, and he will ultimately provide for his people forever as they live and dwell with him. Jesus, earlier in the book of Matthew, quoted from Deuteronomy that says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of our Lord, God provides for us in so many ways. And yet, it seems difficult for us to imagine how we could be this dependent on God. I don't know that many of us understand what it's like to go to bed each night and not know. Are you going to have food in the morning? Are you going to have a place to stay? Are you going to have clothes for your back. We take this for granted. Perhaps that has been a benefit of the last year through all its difficulties is a realization that we are utterly dependent upon God to provide for us in every single way. Yet thankfully our needs being met are not contingent upon how faithful we are to pray for them or to acknowledge them. Even when we take them for granted, God graciously provides. But this petition invites us into a experience of the Father's care. It shows us how necessary it is to orient ourselves in humility and dependence upon God. This humility that is developed by regularly admitting we need him each and every day. The second petition is, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. It's expected here that we forgive others. Mercy is prominent throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount. Think the end of chapter 5 when Jesus teaches us how to engage our enemies and those who persecute us. And think also about the parable later in the book of Matthew, chapter 18, of the unforgiving servant who is forgiven of a giant debt by his master and then goes 
and shows no mercy to a servant who owes him a fraction of that. We have been forgiven much, and so we forgive. Jesus doesn't allow us to slip back into a comfortable, externally focused religion. He wants us to experience greater, deeper, whole person righteousness that is expressed in our lives and in our relationships. We don't get to just drink of God's grace and mercy without extending it. No, we are expected to live out what we have received. And we'll see this more in verses 14 and 15. But this final petition. Do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This one is difficult in some ways, and it makes us question, well, why would we need to pray this? Why would we ask God not to lead us into temptation? That seems theologically suspect. Doesn't this contradict his character as a father who loves us and cares for us? One thing that is helpful here is to, to note the difference between tempt and test, at least in English. The word used here in the New Testament in Greek it can mean either one of those things. It can apply to both tempting and testing, and yet in English, if we were to say God tempts us, we know, wait, that's wrong. That's not, that's not accurate. God does test his people. We see that in Scripture. He tests them to refine and to disciple, uh, discip, di- uh, discipline them, sorry, but it's always for their good. Think of Abraham in Genesis 22 or Deuteronomy 8, which talks about God testing his people in the wilderness. And yet he never tempts them. That is the work of the evil one. As James 1 says, No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil. Then, after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. And so, as James clarifies for us, God does not tempt. That is the work of Satan, the evil one, mentioned in the last half of this verse. Think about, though, again, a few chapters earlier in chapter 4, when Jesus is led out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan... We can say that he's tempted by Satan, and yet the entire ordeal is a test of God. What this prayer is getting at then is not that we're asking to be, uh, uh, not, not that we're asking God to remove all trials, all tests of faith. The point is that he would protect us so that we're not tested beyond what we can bear, as 1 Corinthians clarifies as well. This is ultimately then about God's protection, about him not tempting us, but preserving us when we do inevitably face trials and tempting from the devil, that God would preserve us from giving in to sin, that he would not allow us to be tested beyond what we can bear. And God is faithful to do this is another way in which he provides for us. So he does not tempt, and yet he tests and preserves and uses situations to 
grow us and discipline us and make us more like Christ. After that last plea is a couple of comments where the prayer is ended and now there's a couple of unexpected sentences that Jesus interjects here. It's a commentary of sorts on one specific line in the prayer regarding the forgiveness of our sins. So in 14, verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. Including this warning serves to drive home the weightiness of interpersonal relationships among God's people, the church. This has already been emphasized throughout the Sermon on the Mount, and we see it again later, like I said, in chapter 18. We see it in chapter 16 as well. And so including this, this concept of mercy shows us that Jesus' followers are to be those whose values have been transformed by their acceptance of God's kingship and their reception of his grace. They've received in abundance and they give in abundance. One writer says, uh, says poignantly, there is no serious prayer for forgiveness except on the lips of a forgiver. There is no serious prayer for forgiveness except on the lips of a forgiver. We cannot ask God for forgiveness without also forgiving in return. That is the hypocrisy that Jesus drives at in this entire Sermon on the Mount. Those who externally would appear to be righteous and yet their hearts do not reflect true righteousness. This emphatic conclusion is in keeping with all that Jesus has stressed so far. The people of God in Christ must have a righteousness that is greater than mere external obedience and outward appearance. This final warning doesn't make salvation contingent upon works. It doesn't contradict justification by faith, and yet it demonstrates that a revenge-seeking heart is clearly not one that God, uh, that, that is truly believed in God's forgiveness of sins. As Scripture repeatedly testifies, God's people are to forgive others just as they have been forgiven through the death of Christ. As we conclude the Lord's Prayer, as we explore this vision of the kingdom of God, of, of the desires that should characterize God's people, what I pray and what I hope and what I believe the purpose of this prayer is, to, is for is to reorder our desires, to reorient them onto God, onto his ways, onto his kingdom. The Lord's Prayer reorients our desires away from ourselves towards the majesty and glory of God. It's one thing to simply repeat the Lord's Prayer like a parrot or like one of the pagan babblers mentioned in verse 8. But to pray the Lord's Prayer with sincerity has revolutionary implications. By reciting, memorizing, and repeating these words in earnestness and righteousness, we are taught to yearn for God's glory, not ours. We're taught to yearn for Christ's kingdom, not ours. We are taught to yearn for God's will to be done, not ours. 
as we absorb the realities of Yahweh's continual provision, Christ's boundless forgiveness, and the providential protection of God's gracious preservation by the Spirit, our desires are rearranged and we learn Christ. We put on Christ, as Paul writes. And so by rearranging our desires, the true vision of reality that is exhibited in the Lord's Prayer, it conforms us to the image of Christ, who perfectly embodied all that his prayer mentioned. In doing so, this prayer causes us to correspond more and more to the flourishing, righteous, and whole persons that God created us to be. As we pray the Lord's Prayer with Christ and with each other, we become who God has made us to be in Christ. And so this prayer is not, again, it's not mild, it's not uh, trivial. This prayer is revolutionary, and this prayer has implications that will change us in ways that we will not expect. And yet God in his grace, invites us into this experience of life and life to the full, life that is flourishing, life that is whole and complete. If we, by God's grace, embody these prayers, these petitions, then we learn what it means to be a people who are blessed, who are flourishing, as Jesus tells us earlier in his sermon. Would you pray with me, asking God to make this so? Father, our Father, you are good and gracious. You are perfect. You are kind. We thank you for these words here, which are refreshing, which are burden-freeing. And yet, we also acknowledge the gravity and the seriousness of the realities portrayed here in these words. To be a people who embody the kingdom of Christ is not easy, especially in a world that is so against such a kingdom. And so we pray, Father, that by your grace, we would become more and more people who embody these things? Would we live into our identity as your children who are beloved, who are forgiven in Christ? Would we depend on you? Would we forgive as we've been forgiven? Would we trust in you when we face hardship? Lord, we pray, we plea, now more than ever, that your kingdom come, that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's in the name of our Savior we pray, amen.